Russian stories about, you know, Russia is innocent. Russia is the good guy. Russia just wants peace. My name is Eva Von Schaefer. And I am Daivara Pechkaite, joining you from Florence. So who did we just hear? This week we're talking to Christian Santos Rasmussen, who is a PhD candidate at the European University Institute in Florence. His research is about Russia's disinformation and the way disinformation actors adapt their messages to different audiences, depending on their language, history, and his focus is on Germany, Poland, and disinformation actors, global outreach in English. What I also thought was interesting in this interview was that he also talked about Seymour Hirsch, the American journalist, calling him, I believe, a useful idiot. There's a term that is being applied to people who are are not directly influenced or probably not paid by disinformation actors, but actually in their own will and following their own beliefs, take these talking points and spread them further. And we talked a bit about disinformation around Nord Stream and how he sees disinformation developing in the coming years. At the end of the interview, so basically towards the end of the podcast, he will talk about how he thinks disinformation can be stopped. If you're interested in how anti-vaccine and energy disinformation overlaps, we have an episode on this. We'll link to it in the description. Okay, excellent. So let's start listening to our interview. Hi, my name is Christian Santos Rasmus. I'm a PhD researcher at the European University Institute, where I work on disinformation and specifically Russian disinformation campaigns. I also do a little bit on Chinese, but Russian disinformation campaigns. So my topics fall into three categories. It's looking at the spread of disinformation, looking at the shapes of information narratives, of strategic narratives that are being pushed. How, how do they differ between audiences? And then look at can these be actually countered? We've been looking at how fringe communities consume a lot of Russian disinformation and how we can try to intervene in those communities and inform them about the quality of the information that they're receiving and see if that actually changes. Is this an interest that you've had for a long time? I mean, what brought you to Russian disinformation? So I did a, an internship at a research center which was looking at attention to economics. So how, you know, talking about, for example... You know, the Will, Will Smith slap at the Oscars. It kind of takes attention away from perhaps more important stuff, such as you could say the war in Ukraine or domestic policies, instead of, you know, celebrities fighting on national stage. So that, that kind of like interest started pretty early on. And then I started looking at how was Russia actually using this kind of attention strategies to kind of absorb attention from, from the Western users. So I started like lingering a little bit into the, that got me into it. And then I finished my master's thesis on Russian disinformation campaigns in Eastern Europe and been working on Russian disinformation in, for, in a Danish context to kind of see, evaluate Danish policies on it. If we're talking about Russian disinformation campaigns, 
I wonder if you could just give our listeners an idea of what a disinformation campaign looks like. So disinformation, it comes out of a, you can say, like a long theoretical tradition within the Russian security apparatus of using information in an offensive way. Some people call it weaponizing information. I don't know if that's necessarily that useful to think about it in that term, but it is about managing information spaces and the information available to specific audiences to influence their decisions in a way that is favorable to you. And overall, it's an effort to kind of manipulate what kind of information is available so that we, the audience, are not no longer making informed decisions, but perhaps misinformed decisions or being guided. So it is about manipulation. But what does manipulation actually mean? Does it mean that I suddenly believe tomorrow that you know Ukraine was attacking Russia and this is therefore the reason why the whole war started? No, it it means, because a lot of Russian disinformation content actually does this, is trying to kind of push at existing doubts that I have. So for example, like Ukraine being a a Nazi state. So the Azov Battalion was affiliated with Nazism. So that kind of like already exists within my knowledge. And by pushing that button on and on and on again, I suddenly start to believe that I start to, or you can say like, my inclinations are being enforced. Mm-hmm. So if I were to think about a disinformation campaign, is it fair to say there's somebody somewhere in Russia sitting in a room thinking yeah. of these stories? And, and what are the outlets that they use, let's say, in Europe and all over the world? You can think of it like different tranches of actors. You can have someone who was very connected to, to the Kremlin. So for example, Kremlin came out, I think it's two days ago now, saying, oh, we found an antenna close to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline blow up. And this confirms the Seymour Hersh story about it was US behind it. Uh, so that came from such high top that it kind of it kind of looks like this was this is there's some information that comes from or is curated from the Kremlin. So that's a bit closer. Then you can think of like, so you have those who are connected directly to the Kremlin. So that would be, you know, whatever the uh, the press office from there would be saying. There is some research who indicates that the Kremlin has regular meetings with media outlets in both in Russia, but also outside of Russia. So Russia Today and Sputnik, for example, where they are being given. So this is kind of what we want you guys to talk about. Then we start to look into like your people who are affiliated, but not directly like necessarily controlled by Russia. So this would be reporters who present themselves as independent, but have a very, very pro-Russian bias. And they know more or less what they're doing. And then you can go into and call them what used to be called the useful idiots. One could argue that Hirsch has played that role with his analysis on the Nord Stream 2, because he claims that this is is the US. However, his story of how this was actually how this actually happened had, is full of holes there's a lot of like errors in it whether he's aware that he's aiding russian disinformation base we don't know but mm-hmm. he is and he is being used a lot in russian media so you can kind of think of like the, the kremlin at the center and then you have more and more tranches down towards people who are, have no idea what they're doing so yeah you can say there's someone in, in Russia, who's sitting and cooking up all of these stories. But I think it would be a very simpl- simplified description of it. So if we look at Simon Hirsch, what we would say, he's just been reporting. And I actually find Simon Hirsch really shocking because he was a journalistic hero to so many people. 
So is he just not doing his reporting? Is he being fed information? Do we have any idea of what the exact mechanics are? We have no idea what kind of information he's being fed. When we look at other reporters, there's a uh, there's a guy called Patrick Lancaster and a guy called Philip Grahams, who are a UK and a US citizen. They've given a lot of access to Eastern Ukraine, and it's heavily curated. So when they, they go and they talk to Russian soldiers who are very, very clear about what they're about the message that they're given. Philip Grahams was allowed to interview one of the prisoners of war, who a UK prisoner that the Russians caught in Asostal. He's given, you know, very, very exclusive access. And when you look at the content, it's very, very well polished. So you can say there is a feeding of information going on. Whether Seymour Hearst has been been fed information or is simply has is just misunder, misunderstood or like for all, because we still don't know what happened at Nord Stream 2. He might have been 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 right. We don't know, but there's just a lot of errors in his stuff, so which indicates that he's not. So there, there's differences in like we can't say that Seymour Hirsch is, is is a Russian stooge, but we can say he aids a narrative and he helps with that narrative of of so Russia we, being innocent and all of this. So we know already that there are strategic narratives that mm. Russia pro Russian actors are pushing and. Then we also know that there's a, a kind of curation, as you were saying, giving some people access and maybe showing them, look, there's a whistleblower who wants to give you some important information. But what, what you mentioned before that I think is important is some kind of strategic distraction. And maybe you could talk a bit more about it. Yeah, sure. The attention economy. This is about driving attention away from, from different stuff. What, one example could be, but, but it, it's not a great example, but one example could be before the invasion of Ukraine, Russia was continuously denying that it had any soldiers near the Ukrainian border. Instead, they very aggressively pushed stories of Ukraine bombing civilian targets. So there was a, for example, like a kindergarten in, in Donbass who was, was constantly being referred to. And it was, re- it was being pushed on all of the majors. So you had Sputnik, you had RT, you had Southfront, your strategic culture, who shared this story. And there was an attempt to divert our attention away from Russian soldiers at the Ukrainian border to Ukraine attacking civilians. That story, however, turned out not to be true. And if we take a look at the paper, I think, or the talk that you held recently, could you sum that up? So the paper tries to look at what kind of narratives are being pushed in Germany, Poland, and on English. And we did find a difference between them. So what we did was we looked on an aggregate level of what kind of stories were being pushed like overall. And then we went in depth on Nord Stream 2 to see how was that being portrayed. And interestingly enough, then you can talk again about the, this attention dynamics. What we found was for Sputnik, Sputnik didn't have an article in German on Nord Stream 2 until around 2000, I think it's 20. So that's where the external diplomatic pressure from both the US and from some, some Eastern European countries, such as Poland, for example, became too big. And Ukraine, of course, became, too, became so big that they could no longer ignore it, but there was an interest in keeping it absolutely out of the agenda until up, up until that. Whereas in the the early early 2015, you had a lot of them in English, and you also had already back in 2014 in Polish. There was an attempt to 
shape a narrative earlier in Poland and in global English-speaking narrative or audience than there was in German. So you, you can see some kind of a difference in ancient focus. We ended up finding that there were some differences in what kind of narratives were being pushed overall. So for example, in, in Poland, because of Polish, you could call it historical trauma of Soviet occupation, also the history of the outbreak of World War II. And there's a hostility in Polish audiences towards Russian and Russian narratives. They had to deal with that. So they would be focusing on historic revisionism, telling that, you know, this whole deal is fictitious, it's lies, and the Polish government is conducting a war on history against against Russia. In Germany, there wasn't, there isn't that hostility to, to it. Instead, there would be a much more emphasis on, you know, Russia is just being bullied and being attacked vigorously by, by the West. All of these accusations are lies. There were a few differences there. Looking at Nord Stream 2, it was kind of interesting to see how, for example, like the EU would play different roles in the, in the English narrative, which is targeting like global audience, primarily an American and a UK audience. It was all about like the EU was a victim of US aggression because the US wanted to stop Nord Stream 2. So all of the sanctions against Nord Stream 2 were described as a, you know, as a violation of European sovereignty. I clearly remember that. I clearly yeah. remember that. And I can't even say that I thought it was that wrong. So problem, a problem about thinking of disinformation as either true or wrong is it, it, it doesn't really, it, it gives a lot of ground to, you could say, the disinformation actor because there's a gray zone. There's always something that is more true than something else. There's something that is kind of an interpretation. Some of it is just, you know, partial facts, partial truth. So when it come, came to the North Stream 2, there was a lot of, like, it was kind of easy to make this claim of the U.S. like bulldozing Europe. In, in, the, in the Polish narrative, there wasn't really that much attention to the EU. And in the German it completely flipped and it the EU was in cahoots with the US. It was an anti-Russian actor who's trying to disrupt the whole process. And it was actually also kind of like, you know, infringing on 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 on, on, on German sovereignty. So there's interesting like how that actor played different roles in, in the narrative to kind of like spread it. And the reason why the EU was portrayed as an as an you know an antagonist was during the couple of years of Nord Stream 2, there, there, there was a debate whether Nord Stream 2 was actually in violation of EU monopoly laws because Gazprom, who owns Nord Stream 2, also owns the gas that, co that goes through the pipeline and the pipeline itself. So that was in violation with anti-monopoly laws. So there was a, there was a they had to recertify their, their operation. And that whole process was in the German narrative that Splitting was pushing, being interpreted as an attack from Brussels. So that kind of shows you the, a little bit of the difference. Do you do you do you think that there is just a reservoir? I'm going to say of pro-Russian sentiment in Germany. I think there is a. Okay, so 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 first of all, there has been a growing like increase in in fringe communities in Germany. It's so we 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 did an, another study on on fringe communities in Western Europe. And Germany has quite a lot of them. So already there. Fringe communities are people who usually consume a lot of misinformation, who believe a lot of conspiracy theories. Germany is a big country, so there there was a big there was a big audience who would be kind of accepting of these narratives of, of conspiracy theories targeting the U.S. So 
that might be one thing. I also think that there is a historic difference in that the the German the German interpretation or the German story of World War II is is one of accepting total responsibility of of the war, which also means that everyone who were who were fighting you was basically a good guy. So with with the Russian army, the Russian army is seen as liberators in in the Germans in the German narrative. In the Polish narrative, they're not. They're just seen as you know a new occupier. So there are, you have two very, very different approaches to rush to, to you say Russian narratives, pro-Russian narratives, Russian stories about, you know, Russia is innocent. Russia is the good guy. Russia just wants peace. It's a hard sell in, in Poland. It's an easier sell in Germany for that reason. I also think, especially now during the war in Ukraine, there is a, a culture of pacifism and and a, a culture of of not of, of anti-war in, in in Germany that has been very very beneficial. So again, it's not necessarily about convincing you as an audience of a message. It's making you flip your opinion completely. But it's also about you know pushing the right buttons. And there you have you have a lot more buttons to press in Germany than you have in Poland. And I was also thinking about what you said in the talk yeah. that. that in a way, Sputnik and other pro-Russian outlets or Russia-linked outlets take a stance on each country's elite, and they try to promote a certain position. Taking they they are speaking to certain audiences that are already unhappy. So maybe you could expand on on that. What kind of image are these disinformation outlets portraying? One of the problems for a lot of Russian disinformation is that not every elite in Europe is interested in, in buying into their narratives. So they tend to go after or tend to have a have, have connections, both like financially supporting parties, but also just giving more airtime to populist and far right far right parties because they're they're in opposition to the established parties who are more pro-American than they are pro-Russian. So that's why they have to go to, you can say, like people on the extremes or on the fringes of the political spectrum. One where this is kind of obvious is during the last German Bundestag the for, for parliament, Russia Today and Sputnik would give a lot of airtime to Alternative für Deutschland, the, uh, the far, far right party in Germany, would be very, very like talk a lot about their politics, also talk about issues related to their politics. So for example, very much on immigration, they would push a lot on on anti-immigration stories and they would be very critical towards the the Green Party because the Green Party has been opposing very adamantly Nord Stream 2 but, and also took a much more anti or yeah, an anti-Russian political stance when they came into government. In that sense, they are according to a, some some domestic elites. But but a problem is, you know, we we have, especially in Western Europe, a very pro pro American view in general, and that's seen as you know direct threat by 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 Russia because it still operates in this you know anti basically basically a cold, a cold war mentality of if you're against if you're not with us you're you're against us. And if we if we're looking at the fringe groups that you were talking about, if we look at Germany, for example, is there anyone on the left? So so interestingly, just 
before before this this podcast, I, I was looking at how often Timo, who is like the leader of, of AFD, would pop up on interviews on RT and Sputnik. And he gives a lot of interviews to RT and Sputnik, which is kind of interesting because both of those platforms have been banned in, in Europe. So so his primary audience in Germany isn't doesn't have access to it unless they use you know VPNs or, or other kind of like points of access. So so that's kind of interesting. He's been pushing a lot of it. I, then I did the same to look at you know Die Linke and you have Sarah Wagenknecht. She doesn't appear that often, but her re- rally for for peace I think it was a couple of weeks ago does appear and it comes up. And there you have like so there there you take or there Sputnik and RT would take you know snippets of interview she gave to other newspapers and kind of like insert them and use use them to kind of like, you know, fill out fill out an article. So there isn't that much of attention to, you know, delinke as one might believe. However, when you look at, you know, previous disinformation campaigns in Eastern Europe has been a tendency of drawing on, you know, former communist networks. So so the the successors of of the Communist Party in, in Eastern Europe have been, you know, very, very helpful. So there you have some kind of connections. I think, I think it's, there's been a lot of focus on, on the far right in the literature in general, but also like in, in, in journalist investigation and, and, you know, independent research, non-academic research, if we can call it that, not that it, you know, belittles it or anything, but there's been a lot of focus on the far far right. And I think one of the reasons is that the far right has co-opted a lot of Again, conspiracies and 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 stories that are that make them more vulnerable to believe a new conspiracy. But again, it's you can use you can press on a lot of buttons. You can also press on a lot of button, buttons on on the left. One example is during the uh, the 2016 U.S. parliamentary presidential election and the last one here in 2022. Russian disinformation campaigns and like botnets and, and 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 media outlets would actually target the black lives matter movement and by like pushing stories of saying oh you know all every police officer is is a racist and this is an inherently racist country uh, why why should you vote this is just you know ridiculous they're, they're never going to be with you so it's also like tapping into frustrations that are you know inherently legitimate in in in, in the u.s just as easy as you can tap into a frustration of being disenfranchised and, and having lost, you know, a, a lost in, in the globalism race. So, so you can still like tap into frustration just by doing that. And there's frustrations all, all across the board. But are the left-wing actors responding as enthusiastically to this? And so are they amplifying? Are they giving interviews at all? So, so, so we have to look at like every campaign by itself, right? The so for, so there's been a study on the MH17, downing the MH17, which has ended up being proven that it was, it was a Russian separatists in in the Donbas who shut it down, and Russia like sent a lot of stories out saying this is absolutely a lie. It was the it was the Ukrainians who shut them down. It's it it wasn't us. Those stories trended more among conservative users on Twitter. So they, they they would conservative users would engage more with it, but that's just one story. When you look at the at right now, for example, at, at the entire peace movement, there's a lot on on the left. Now we haven't there, there hasn't been any, as far as I know, an in depth study of it. But I believe that there there's definitely going to be a 
just as big of resonance in, in, the, in, the far, in the far left than there is going to be on the far right. Because it, it speaks into narrative which has been part of the left for a very long time, anti-war, peace movement, also a tendency of anti-Americanism in, 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 in the far left. Do you have any indication of how this is going to continue to develop? And I think one thing that you mentioned in the beginning was what can we actually do? How can we actually not necessarily stop, but how can we reach these fringe groups and alert them to the dangers of disinformation? Okay, so, so those are two very big questions. So in terms of what's going to happen, and like, so there, there, there's different things that can happen. Like, so when you talk about disinformation campaigns, you can talk about, you know, the content that is being created and then, you know, how it's being, being shared and how, you know, whether it actually works. I think when it comes to the content, it's, it's going to be of the same playbook because it's, it's not really that new and revolutionary. The distribution is, I think that's where it's going to be more interesting. So the EU banned Russia Today and Sputnik. Russia Today and Sputnik were core platforms in Russian disinformation campaigns. They, they would be amplified by other, platform, uh, by other platforms. They would be, you know, redirected towards it, would all be referenced to. Doing that, Russia had to readjust its, its campaigns. And I think it's going to readjust in a way that's probably going to be more lasting. First, first of all, they, they, they admitted that, you know, it's, it's not going to be that easy to reach audiences. So I think they focused on which audiences were more interesting. They had to shut down a lot of editorial offices all over Europe. However, they've maintained a German and Italian and French version, which I think speaks to what is being prioritized. So, so, so there's one thing about like, okay, focusing on the audiences that actually count on a more global scale, it also meant saying, okay, Europe is not our primary market. Our primary market is Africa, South America, and Asia. So one interesting example is that Sputnik just created a, a new platform on India and focusing on, on, on Indian domestic politics. They've had a presence in Asia and Central Asia for a very, very, very long time, but they really started to promote and they have like a telegram for India only, which is kind of interesting as well. And even though like you could say for, for a while, the entire system collapsed, but it, it is so slowly started to rebuild. And it's been rebuilding in, in different ways. So one way is to shift traffic from Russia Today's Facebook account to host to hosts their radio shows and TV shows. So a lot of the TV shows on Russia Today and some of the radio shows from Sputnik still have a presence on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And you can use their their accounts to kind of spread the same content. A lot of those will also have, you know, pinned at the top. Please go to these platforms where the Rush Today is still active and kind of redirect the traffic to that. Another thing in terms of distributing is starting to use more, you can say, modern platforms. As you know, Russia Today and Sputnik were kind of emulating the CNN and BBC as of 24-hour independent news networks. Both Russia and China have been using a lot more influencers lately. In Germany, you have Anna, who is a, an Instagrammer influencer who, you know, mixes up nice photos of a beautiful Russian landscape with her being in Donbass and saying, oh, look at how terrible the Ukrainians are treating the civilians. And this is, you know, this is a bombed out house. So there you're kind of like adapting and taking a more modern take because it's more younger viewers who follow that. You are in, in Spain. So 
taking on more, you know, more modern and more like less traditional media personalities and trying to use them. So there, I think there's a shift towards instead of, you know, broadcasting, going into microcasting and like focusing on influencers with you know a, a more interesting audience. Another thing in terms of redistributing is after the, or during COVID, because we censored so vigorously on on traditional social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, there was a there was a, an audience who had to move over to alternatives, and those alternative platforms suddenly got a much bigger you know user base. So Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, those platforms that grew out of a lot of or grew out grew out of the, the COVID pandemic have kind of started to be co-opted by Russian disinformation actors. So Russian disinformation actors would usually have a presence on Twitter, but also on on on, on, on Rumble, on, on, on Odyssey. Russia Today keeps an active profile on both Rumble and, and Odyssey and, and redirects all their traffic towards them because they know they it's accessible to, to countries in, in, or audiences in, in, in Europe. One platform which with the war has become absolute central is Telegram. And in research, especially academic research, we've had an extreme focus on Twitter. If that's not really your primary audience, why why invest in Twitter? Looking into these other platforms is, is going to be much more important because they are going to be the new platforms that are that are interesting. For, for China, this is all about TikTok. There are some Russian like disinformation actors who who are active on TikTok. But it's it's they've they've been more focused on you know Instagram they've been more focused on yeah on Telegram Telegram is huge. How can let's just say European or other global democracies? What can we do? Is there think, some kind of solution, or is it just you know it's only going to get worse from here? I think there are two ways to go about this. One of them is censorship, and the other is counter speech, counter narrative, and you can do both of them. Badly, and you could do both of them in, in a more like intelligent way. I think this, the censorship the, and the effort to, to censor Russian disinformation on large social media platforms is going to backfire on the long run. It's going to give, you know, on, on the short run, some benefits because, you know, the, the broad audience who, who are not active on these fringe, because they're still fringe platforms, like they, 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 it's not normal to have an Odyssey account. It's not normal to have a Rumble account. It's starting to be a little bit more, you know, normal to have a, a Telegram ac- account. And I think, I think it's like, especially in Eastern Europe, it was always like kind of a thing to use Telegram. But but shutting down on these this platform is going to move, you're just going to move it towards another platform where that platform is going to have a user base, which is more vulnerable, more susceptible to, to, to these narratives. I think one of the more interesting is from from this war has been ukrainian communication the, the ukrainians are also like pushing some propaganda they're also like you know what do you, what do you call it i won't call it won't call it disinformation because i think there's actually some a lot of truth in what they're saying but is it is sometimes cherry picking of reality right but it's counter speech and we've seen like the, the ukrainians have actually been very very effective in pushing back on their on Russian narratives. And I think that is probably a, a strategy that Europe could go forward with. This is not to say, and I'm not advocating to start revamp the propaganda departments from the Cold War, but acknowledging that, you know, 
providing providing a narrative, a counter narrative to Russia is is very very important, and it's very important to keep to make sure that you know the stories and 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 facts that doesn't really fit into Russia's Russia's narrative actually come out. So we need we need to create or we need to be better at providing narratives which are first of all factual, and it's it, it's factual because it's easier to you know to tell tell the truth and maintain a lie because then you have to keep like making up lies and you have to be extremely detailed instead of like telling the truth which everyone else can verify and this is one of the things that i think the ukrainians have been doing really pretty well is that you know when they say this attack happened here you have an entire community of open source intelligence analysts who can actually find the videos and verify this actually happened and i think mm -hmm. that is probably a way to, to counter it so one of the things we did in, in an experiment was to see what happens if we tell fringe communities that 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 what they're consuming here is you know is problematic for these reasons so we debunked some of their claims and it actually worked and people would actually listen to it and stop, stop consuming that that source of, of disinformation so counter speech can work and i think we should probably acknowledge that a bit more and 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 vamp up our you know our communication strategies both both domestically and abroad and i think domestically have been quite effective we still have a in europe at least a you know growing or not growing but we we have maintained a quite large support for for ukraine which kind of indicates that you know public communication from governments have been effective in doing that and just one quick um kind of bonus question so, so you you were Doing this research for a number of years, have you yourself personally been on the radar of Russian disinformation actors or botnets? I think I'm 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 too I'm too too small a fish for having you know experienced big things like Otto from Finland has like you know harrowing tales of her being persecuted by 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 Russia and disinformation actors and you know botnets. It was very terrible. So I, I like I haven't experienced any of that. So that was our interview. And what did you think? Now listening to it again, what did you think was the most interesting thing that I thought? I thought that was very interesting, but he shows how there is this kind of murky zone um, in which a lot of different actors are swimming and there's there's a kind of like there's a and there's a network of actors with different levels of proximity to, to the Kremlin, and we don't have to see them as having equal power. But actually, they, they do have a lot of power over their audiences. What I think I would definitely want to follow is the use of influencers and the use of this kind of very, very diffused, very decentralized media landscape. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I thought that was interesting. And I have to say, I'm still shocked by the fact that Seymour Hirsch, who's a journalistic hero, or one of my journalistic heroes, is supposed to be a useful idiot. Yeah, so as we are recording this, we're, there are still no conclusions on on the Nord Stream sabotage. And so I think it's something to keep in mind for those who are listening to this later, and we will see what emerges. Exactly. And if anything does, you know, if anything does change, of course, we'll add the links to the show notes and the transcript will be on our website. And thank you again for listening. And we'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. In the meantime, you can find us on social media, not on Telegram, but on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
See you in two weeks. Bye for now. Bye.